Please turn with me, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, to Matthew chapter 4. And we'll also look at those two passages in Hebrews that we looked at a little bit later. It's lovely to have visitors with us today. Uh, you've, you've come to us uh, when we're at number four, the last in our series on temptation and the tempter, temptation and the tempter. And uh, uh, over these last weeks, we've expended quite a lot of time and energy and thought uh, about these subjects, vitally important matters for the Christian. If you're a Christian, then this is a vitally important matter. And I think we've emphasized that. Uh, we looked at uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, where the Apostle Paul says, so that we are not ignorant of his devices. And what we have sought to do over these last three weeks particularly, and also last Wednesday, and this book that we mentioned, is, is to, to ensure that none of us are ignorant of the devices, of the wiles, of the subtleties, of the schemes, of the plans, of all those thought-through things which Satan does against us in temptation. So what now? <laughs> what now? Well, this is vitally important. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we sang what Isaac Watts wrote. Now, now let my soul arise and tread the tempter down. My captain leads me forth to conquest and a crown. A feeble saint shall win the day, though death and hell obstruct the way. And you might stop me and you might say, yes, but you don't know how badly I am tempted. You don't know how easily I fall. You don't know what my besetting sin is. And I struggle so much. Well, Isaac Watts comes back to us, doesn't he? And he says this, should all the hosts of death and powers of hell unknown put their most dreadful forms of rage and malice on, I shall be safe. For Christ displays superior power and guardian grace. And that's the note of triumph and of victory and of guardian grace and keeping that we want to bring this morning. Because the danger is, isn't it, that we spent three weeks or so looking at temptation and the tempter and we could be cast so down, couldn't we? We, we, we could say, I, I can't cope. I've I read about how Jesus coped, but I can't cope. And I struggle with this whole matter of temptation. Well, here we have something in this passage of the Lord Jesus Christ with his superior power and his guardian grace displayed for us, for you and for me. So we can't miss this. Otherwise, we find that what we've looked at leaves us maybe even despairing. But here we have victory and we have that great uh, time when Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil. And he did it not only on his own behalf, but he did it on our behalf to teach us. Isn't it interesting that um, after the Lord Jesus is baptized and the Father says of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is plunged 
into temptation. And he resists that temptation. Knows victory over that tempter who tempts us. And then in chapter 5, we have, don't we, the Sermon on the Mount. And in so many wonderful words and illustrations and ways, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us. Disciples sat there on the hillside and we believe there were others around as well listening in. And he teaches them through his words, through what he says. But here in this chapter, in chapter 4, he teaches us through what he does, through his example. And we've often said in this church, haven't we, that example is the greatest rhetoric. You can say lots of stuff, but unless your example holds uh, true, then it all just falls down, doesn't it? And here the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us by example these great things that we're going to look at. So just to remind ourselves, last time we looked, didn't we, at the way the tempter came to the Lord Jesus, and we said four things. Do you remember those four things? Firstly, it was a certainty. It teaches us of a certainty. If the tempter came and tempted Jesus, then surely he's going to come and tempt us. The certainty of temptation. Secondly, we talked about the suitability of temptation, how Satan came and suited his temptation to Jesus, to the situation in which he was. He suited it like he suits it to us for what Satan thought were Jesus' weak points. He didn't have any weak points, but we do, don't we? We thought of them through all the different names in the Bible on Wednesday, where the weak points were so many saints of old, and in the congregation amongst us here, us, with weak points, and Satan comes, suitable temptations. Then we thought about the variety, didn't we? Satan doesn't keep harping on about the, uh, about the stones and the bread. He doesn't keep going with that, does he? He, he comes again and again with a different variety of temptations. He, 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 he tries physically to tempt the Lord Jesus. Then he tries mentally, as it were. He, he takes him up onto the top of the temple and he says, well, if you, if you fall down from here, surely won't God send his angels to catch you? Those, those subtle temptations that come to us in our minds. And then the, the last temptation, it seemed to me to be a, a spiritual temptation. If you worship me, he said. It's about worship. It's about the spiritual aspect of our lives. And, and Satan comes in all these ways. Certainty, suitability, variety. And then we said subtlety, didn't we? Subtlety. He comes to Jesus with lies and doubts. And he even quotes the scripture. Isn't that amazing? How Satan quotes scripture to try and tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have now the example of how the Lord Jesus treads the tempter down. So we've been given those helps to understand those four ways in which Satan comes to us. Now, we just pray that God will give us help in understanding four things. Four things about how the Lord Jesus deals with the tempter that can help us. By his example. We see his example here. We're meant to note it. And the first thing we notice is readiness. 
the readiness of the Savior. Do you see in verse 4, Satan comes the first time, doesn't he? And uh, so in verse 3, he comes the first time, he says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And then straight away in verse 4, it says this, But Jesus answered. He's ready. There's not a delay. Reverently, we say, Jesus didn't say, I'll have to think about that. Let me consider it. I'm not sure. He didn't waver like we do because he was ready. He was ready. And the pattern is the same, isn't it? In verse 7, we see in verse 7, in verse 5 and 6, the devil takes up uh, Satan, uh, the devil takes up the Lord Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple uh, and, and he quotes scripture at him and so on. Uh, and straight away in verse 7, Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him straight away, he was ready. He was ready for that physical temptation. He was ready for that mental temptation. And not surprisingly, we find, don't we, in verse 10, we just emphasize the point. Straight away, Jesus was able to reply to Satan's subtleties, his lies, and his doubts that he was trying to sow. It was 7.48 in the morning. The 7th of December, 1941, in the Pacific Ocean. Hundreds of Japanese planes suddenly appeared in the sky. Hundreds and hundreds of American servicemen and women lost their lives. Ships were sunk, planes were destroyed, America was brought into the war. And what was so devastating about that, the raid on Pearl Harbor, is that the Americans just were not ready. They were not ready. They didn't see it coming. As we've seen the tragedy of everything that's happened in Israel and Gaza, whatever our thinking on it, and I don't, I'm not being political here, but, but isn't it the case that, that right at the beginning, the reason Hamas did what they did and could do what they did is because the, the, the Israeli forces and intelligence were not ready. They didn't expect it. We never expected it. So you see, it teaches us, doesn't it? Jesus is ready. And temptation comes and we have to be ready. Now, if you've got your Bible and you can do so, please turn to it. But just listen. Otherwise, um, we see this comes in different ways. There is a great example, isn't there, of this in David's life. In 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. And we know the rest of the story. 
David was not ready. He didn't see it coming, did he? That look. Any man seeing a naked woman bathing. What's next? Look away. But he kept on looking. And he said, who's that? And bring her to me. And all the rest. You see, suddenly, suddenly, Satan can come. We need to be ready. But then secondly, subtly, Satan comes. So, if, again, if you've got your Bible, Genesis 39, in Genesis 39 we have the example of Joseph. And what a remarkable story the story of Joseph is. Uh, and we pick up the story where Joseph is now in the house of Potiphar. He's down in Egypt. Uh, and, and Potiphar had left all that he had in Joseph's hand. Uh, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came up to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused. He was ready. Look, she said, my master doesn't know what, what's going on in the house. There's no one greater in the house than I, and that is kept back from me. Joseph's ready. But you see in verse 10, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day. We need to be ready like Jesus was for the sudden and the subtle, for the quick fire temptation and the long haul day by day. James 1 verse 12 tells us there is a blessing for those who resist temptation. Now we said on Wednesday, didn't we, that Satan loads the bait onto the hook and he shows you the bait, but he doesn't show you the hook. And you think that the bait, you think that the temptation is going to lead to, to nice things, good things. But God tells us, no, the good things, the blessings are for those who overcome temptation, who resist temptation. David, if only you'd not looked again. Joseph, well done for being ready. Are you ready? Jesus was ready. When the Lord Jesus was there in Gethsemane, his disciples fell asleep. And what did Jesus say? He said, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Watch and pray. Be ready. We've spent all this time, the last three weeks and Wednesday too, what have we done that for? Why have we done that? To help us to be ready. To help us to be ready. And here is Jesus, and he's ready. Be like Jesus. Be ready at all times. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't let Satan take advantage. We're going to see that Jesus will give us help to be and to do as he did.
And remember, temptation is not sin. Jesus is sinless, but he was tempted. And Satan will come and tempt you, and tempt you, and tempt you. But that's not sin. Jesus didn't sin. He overcame because he was ready. Secondly, the other came because of the word of God. He had the word of God ready, didn't he? In each occasion, I'm sure we know it, I'm sure we've seen it, uh, there's like a drumbeat. What one of my colleague preachers on Wednesday when we were talking about this, he said there's a drumbeat, isn't there? There's a drumbeat. It is written. It is written. It is written. There is something here that Jesus teaches us by example that the word of God is powerful in resisting the devil. He uses it every time. There's a very telling verse, isn't there? Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, the psalmist is saying, your word have I hidden in my heart. Well, what's the point of that? Are you going to do some sort of scripture tests and, and win every time? Are you going to have in, in conversation, uh, you're going to be able to pull out Bible verses, easy peasy. Are you a great preacher because you don't even have to look at the Bible, you know the verses? No, no, no. What the psalmist is saying this, your word have I hidden in my heart. There's a reason for it. Not any of those things. Is that I might not sin against you. We must be people who constantly refer to and know and read and love and meditate upon and apply the word of God. We're to know what it says, but we're to know what it means and how it applies. We're doing that, aren't we? This is what we are doing. We are doing this. We're saying, why is this here? Why is this passage here? It's here because Jesus is giving us an example. Why is Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 there? The Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is teaching us verbally. And we come in, and into the Word of God and we see in all sorts of ways, through prophecy, through poetry, uh, through uh, history, through uh, all sorts of things. We are constantly being given that readiness to stand against Satan. When you think about the whole armour of God, and Richard took us through it, didn't he, not all that long ago. We, we learnt this, didn't we, that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is really the only offensive weapon. Did you read about that man when there was that terrible stabbing in Ireland just recently, uh, in Dublin, uh, and, and that man ran to protect the children, uh, and he got a hard hat on, working on a building site. He took his hard hat off, and he started bashing the man with his hard hat. Well, well the helmet of salvation, we, we could take that off and start bashing Satan, but we've been given the word of God. That's what Jesus uses. Here's the example. It is written. So we must use the word of God. We must know it. It was striking at the men's convention a couple of weeks ago. There were a lot of our men here who, who were there. And the speaker said this, didn't he? He was talking about 
the world and how the world just carries us along in its sort of ways. And he said, how are we going to resist that? And he said two things. By hearing and by reading the word of God. That's it. How are we going to resist the world and its temptations and the world its influences? How are we going to resist the tempter? Through the word of God. Some of you young ones soon are going to go away perhaps to university. You're going to go and try and find a church. And it won't be quite like this because no churches are the same. But wherever you go, make sure of this. That the Bible and the preaching of the word of God and the encouragement of the reading of it is absolutely central. We love singing. We love doing stuff. We love doing fellowship. We love doing all sorts of things. But it's the love of the word of God which will help us most against temptation. Number three. The help of the Saviour. This is so important because we might say, yes, but I just keep getting caught and I'm not ready. And I don't know whether I know enough of the word of God or it didn't come back to me quick enough or I'm not yet sort of soaked in it, as it were. So how am I going to follow Jesus' example? Well, here in the example of Jesus, it points us to what he does for us in situations like this. The help of the Saviour. Now, this is where, keep a finger in Matthew 4, uh, but turn with me to the passages that we read in Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we read verses 14 uh, to 18. And surely when we read that, when we got to verse 18, did we not say, ah, well that refers back to Matthew 4. Because it says of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, that for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now it depends what version of the Bible you've got here, because there's all sorts of words here. There it says to aid. In the NIV and I think the ESV it says to help. In the AV it says to succor. That's an old-fashioned word, but it's probably nearer the truth of what it really means. The Greek word, the Greek word means to come to someone's aid who is in difficulty. That man came to the aid, didn't he, of those children who were in difficulty. We, 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 sometimes you, maybe you watch um, on the television, Saving Lives at Sea. Or, or something like that. And uh, we, we're just uh, amazed at how people come to help those in, in real need and do, do amazing things. Well, here is Jesus. And he, he, what he does, because he's been tempted himself, he is able to come to help you. Now, he cannot come physically, but he comes by his spirit. He comes to help you. He is there to help you. If the Spirit of God lives in you, dwells in you, and he walks with you and he talks with you along life's narrow way, he is always there to help you. The word is used particularly in a passage in Mark. I looked up where the word was used. 
and don't turn, don't need to turn to it, but you remember the Lord Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with his, some of his disciples. What a wonderful scene that is. But down at the bottom, down at the bottom of the mountain, there's a contrast. Very powerful thing. Jesus with his father, with Peter, James, and John, uh, as it were, the closest as possible they could be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And down at the bottom, there's a battle going on. There's a boy who's possessed, and he's throwing himself and foaming at the mouth, and he cannot be restrained, and he throws himself into the fire, and the, and the father says to the disciples, can you do something to help me? And they can't do it. They can't do it. It is, it is It's beyond them. And they're distressed. Very powerful lesson here. Jesus comes down. And when Jesus comes down, the man says this. Have compassion on us and help us. The word help there is the same word is here. He is able to aid those who are tempted. It's the same thought. I really need your help, Lord. There's nothing that I can do here. I need you. And the, and, and, and the Father, when, when, when Jesus speaks to him, he says those famous words, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So the Father is looking at the disciples and they can't help him. And he's looking at Jesus and he's wondering, can he help me? He, he sort of believes, but he's not really sure. And Jesus comes along and he does that great miracle. He comes along to help. He comes along to help. And it's interesting, isn't he? Isn't it? He comes along to help when nothing else can help. And no one else can help. And what this text in Hebrews is telling us is what Jesus, what Jesus did here in not sinning, although he was tempted, he's our example for us, but he's also our helper for us. So here's the great importance, not only of knowing and reading and, and, and meditating and, and, and just drinking in and being soaked with the word of God, here is the importance of prayer. If our prayer life is such that we are constantly able to speak to our Saviour, we are constantly in touch with him, as it were. It's not, a, it's not an odd and an, an unusual thing for us to be praying. We, we can pray like this man, Lord, I, I believe, I believe you can help me. Please help my unbelief. Please help me in this time of temptation. And we cry out to him. And he comes to help us. That's what it tells us. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. And temptation, it makes us suffer. It's hard going. Particularly when he comes again and again and again. But he's able to help. He's able to help. No one else can help. But he can help. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, because Hebrews 4 is what we looked at last Sunday afternoon with Austin. Uh, and Austin said, could he join in this series and, and help in it? 
And I said, of course you can. And so he took us to Hebrews chapter 4, didn't he? And we saw these great things. And he impressed upon us that this is Jesus, our great high priest. Verse 14, Hebrews 4. You see, Hebrews 2 tells us we have a high priest. But, but the writer to the Hebrews sort of adds something here, doesn't he, in chapter uh, 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. And he pointed out, didn't he, Austin pointed out last Sunday afternoon, that Aaron had a particular job as a high priest. And when Aaron died, there was another high priest and another high priest and, and another high priest. But every one of those high priests was a sinner and first had to sacrifice for their own sin. First had to sprinkle the blood for their own sin. But Jesus never sinned. Yet his blood was said sacrificed. His, he was sacrificed and his blood was shed for us. And he is the great high priest offering up his own sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself for us. So it tells us, doesn't it, seeing then we have a great high priest and he has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hang on in there. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And again, the writer to the Hebrews, is he not thinking back? Is he not thinking back to Matthew 4, referring us back there? Because here's the example. Satan comes, but Jesus isn't, isn't a sinner. He doesn't sin, does he? He comes and he sympathizes with our weakness even though he was tempted as we are in all points, in all points. And Austin pointed out to us last week, didn't he? You might say, well, I, I don't, how did, how, you don't know, I'm, I'm tempted. I, I don't see Jesus being tempted like I was tempted. But it tells us here in all points, we fall so easily, we fall so quickly. Jesus endured temptation to the very bitter end, to the extreme. He knows every temptation. How does he know it? I can't explain it. But it tells us, doesn't it? That he knows it. It doesn't matter what the temptation is. It doesn't matter whether it's physical or mental or spiritual. Jesus knows. He's our great high priest. What did the high priest do? He offered a sacrifice on behalf of the people. So he went into the holy place and he sprinkled the blood and, and he could go through into that place behind the veil. And all the people were outside. But he went on behalf of the people. But here this great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has sprinkled his blood for all his people. So that we might come to God. And at the Easter time, remember the temple veil was rent in two. It was ripped from top to bottom. No longer was there a separation. We can come. Let us therefore, verse 16, Hebrews 4, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are to come boldly. That's an amazing statement. Because when we're tempted and we're on the floor, as it were, we think we can just about crawl there. But the writer to the Hebrews says, no, 
The way is open. Jesus is our great high priest. He understands. He sympathizes. He knew what it was to be tempted. Mercy in our time of failure. Grace to help in time of need. This sure promise of our Savior is a word that we may plead. What a lovely hymn of Leith Samuel that we sang. So here's our fourth point. Uh, these points so far have brought us to, to, to this, really. Uh, the victory of the Savior. The victory of the Savior. Uh, we, we, we've thought of him. Uh, we, we, we've thought of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in his uh, use of uh, the Word of God. We thought of him in his readiness. That was our first point, his readiness in the use of the Word of God. Uh, and then in his aid and help for us. But here is the great and the ultimate thing to learn and to think about this morning. The victory of the Saviour. His victory. Here in verse 11, what do we read? Oh, we, by the way, let's go back. Let's go back, shall we, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11. And there's a lovely word, isn't there? At the beginning of verse 11. Then, then the devil left him. We don't know how long it was. Now, there are those who, who feel that in the 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness, all the time he was being tempted. That may be the case. It does indicate in, 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 in some ways that it was at, right at the very end of the time. But whenever it was, there was a then. It was a time at the end when the devil left him. The devil ran out of steam. The devil ran out of temptations. The, the devil was rebuffed. He couldn't do it. And there's a sense here, there's a victory won in this place. At this time. But in those passages in Hebrews, in Hebrews 2, uh, that passage in Hebrews 2, we're told of how this progresses. It isn't just there in the wilderness. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that he through death might destroy him who had the power of the death, of death. The devil. Here is the great victory of the Lord Jesus, which goes from Matthew 4, to the cross and to that great statement, it is finished, the great victory that he won. And in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, those passages are obviously connected up, as we've seen. It's one progressive uh, uh, extended uh, set of verses which runs right through. And Hebrews 4 and, and verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but it was all points tempted that we are yet without sin. And therefore we can come boldly. Why can we do that? Because, because he was without sin. And he won this victory. And he triumphed on the cross. And in a sense, here in Matthew chapter 4, I think we said this last week, your salvation hangs in the balance here. In, in Matthew chapter 4, if Jesus had sinned, if he had capitulated to the devil's temptation in that passage, the rest of the Bible could not be written. 
All the prophecies would fail. Every pillar of our salvation, every aspect of it, would crumble and fall. But Jesus did not sin. He won the victory. So justification is when his great resistance against the devil and his sinlessness is put to my account. Sometimes we say, don't we? It's just as if I'd never sinned. But I have sinned. I've sinned badly. But justification is Jesus taking all his perfect life and work and resisting of the devil's temptation and it's put to our account. But what about all the stuff I've done? What about all my sin? What about the terrible temptations that I've known and fallen? They're all placed on Jesus. On the cross, when he died for me, all those things were placed on him. There's a great exchange that has taken place. And in that passage in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, there's the word propitiation. Propitiation. It's almost like a step on from justification. That the wrath of God, which is going to be poured out against sin and on sinners one day at the end of this world, the wrath of God is diverted and taken away from me because of my sin. And it falls on Jesus, not because of his sin, but because of mine. And I go free. An adoption is a step beyond that, that he takes me into his family and he calls me his son or his daughter. What wonderful thing. What a great victory the Lord Jesus Christ has won for us. And we sing this hymn so often. We've quoted it already, but we'll do it again. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. The victory of the Saviour. But what about this? You know when we started and our first message about temptation, we began, didn't we, by looking at 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 12 and 13. And we put our application on these little slips. They're at the back if you've not got one and like to take one. And the first thing we said is this. We are very liable to fail. It is a sad reality. Let him Paul says to the church in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, to us, he says, let him, let her who thinks you can stand, take heed, lest you fall. And the sad reality is, we do, don't we? We do. So now what do we do? Because we love justification. And we love propitiation. And we love adoption. And we believe them all. 
and they are truths in God's word, and they are our positional sanctification. They put us in a position where if we were to die tonight, if we were to die as we go home, we are immediately in his presence, and we stand perfect, dressed in righteousness, not my own, his righteousness. I hope we all go home for lunch and I hope tomorrow dawns and we go after work and college and all the rest of it. And the tempter will come. And in a moment, or after a period, we thought we could stand. But we failed. So what do we do? Is it all, is it all a waste of time? What can we do? We've, we've failed. Well, one more passage to go to this morning. One more passage to finish off. Because without this, we have not squared the circle. We, we, we are certain that what we've said is right. There is a sad reality that we still do sin. Don't we? Don't we? So what do we do? Well, in 1 John, in 1 John and verses 5 down to chapter 2 and verse 2, we have a lovely message. We have this message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, he's writing to Christians, John is, and he's, what he's saying is this, the sad reality is that we do sin, don't we? That's the sad reality. If we say we don't sin, then we're deceived. Your theology is completely up the creek, because we do. We don't believe in sinless perfection, not until heaven. We don't believe in a higher life that takes us beyond a life where we still have a capacity to sin. Those things have been taught in the past. And there's an attractiveness to them, but they're not correct. And John tells us this. He says, if we have sin, if we say we've got no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. Now he says what we have to do then, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we go on saying that, well, we're not a sinner now, uh, our theology is wrong. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Why have we preached these messages? Well, so that you don't sin. So that we resist temptation. That's, that's the reason, isn't it? That's why we preach them. That's why we've expended all the preaching energy and the listening energy on the whole thing. That's what John is saying. My little children, I'm writing to you the same reason why David's preaching to you these things, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, oh, well, that's me. If anyone does sin, that's the sad reality. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself 
is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, for Christians all around the world. It doesn't negate anything that we've said to say that sadly we do and will continue to fail and fall and sin. But when we do, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is standing in the courtroom of heaven before a holy God and he is pleading for me, for you. He's pleading our case. He is sending his aid to us. He has given his word to us. He has shown us his example to us. And he is still covering all those sins. Forgiving them. If we come and confess. So our task is this. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. But where we fall. Confess our sins. And he will forgive them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that so wonderfully helps us in the very real matter of temptation. The tempter, Lord, is a real foe. The devil is a real person. We believe that. As real as our Savior. But he is a defeated foe. And if we went on to the book of Revelation, we'd be able to see him cast into the pit. He is defeated. Victory has been won against him. The Lord Jesus Christ rose. So that he defeated death and hell and Satan and all his wiles. And we thank you here in this passage that we have his example. I was able to do that. And he gives us that example so that we might benefit and learn from it. Please, Lord, we pray. Teach us these things. That we might not sin against you. Lord, that we may live lives which are bright and light and holy. Lives which shine out the Lord Jesus Christ, to the world around us. In this battle, Lord, that we have on earth, help us, we pray, to claim the victory of our Saviour, yet when we fail, to claim his advocacy and his love and his care and his sympathy for us. We ask these things that he may be honoured and glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen.